I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. Now get up on your feet, that's it, and give me a great big smile. All right, that's it. Now stay right there. Now put your hands on your hips. Now first take your right leg lifted up, then your left leg. Now I'm sure you can do, sure you can do that. Ready? Begin. One, two, three, four. In an era of wearable tech, high-impact interval training, and spin classes beamed around the world, Jack LaLanne sounds anything but radical, right? But as our guest writes in her new book about America and exercise, LaLanne was beaming into households at a time when, quote, women had been taught that exercise was unladylike and even dangerous. Indeed, Lelaine even felt he had to warn women they wouldn't ruin their figures if they exercised. Jack Lelaine is just one of the transformational figures in America's obsession with exercise. And Natalia Melman Petrozella, today's guest, has taken part in that obsession. So have I. So if you listen to the show, you've probably guessed that I'm an evangelist for exercise. But as Natalia explains in her new book, that obsession can also coexist with shame and narcissism and elitism. Natalia Petrozella is a historian and associate professor at the New School. She's co-host of the podcast, Welcome to Your Fantasy. I'm intrigued. She's a certified <laughs> fitness instructor, and her new book is titled Fit Nation. And she joins us from New York City. Our first name's all right. It's good to have you on the show. First names are perfect. It's great to meet you. And I love a Lelaine clip to kick us off. <laughs> I know. So you're an exercise enthusiast, as I have confessed a number of times that I am too. I want to know what you're into, because there are so many different trends. And we're going to talk about the different trends. What are you doing now? Well, so I'm a little bit promiscuous with my exercise habits, but um, I like to try everything. But I will say what I love, love, love is um, dance cardio. To me, that's just the most fun thing. But I also, I just signed up for a half marathon. So I do do distance running. I'm right now working on a handstand, which I've never been able to do. Um, so I, I do a lot of things and I lift weights. So yeah, a lot of stuff. What are you into? It's, uh, I'm doing some high impact interval training known as HIT. You probably do mm -hmm. that too, right? Absolutely. It's really good for you, especially for women. It's good to know. And I love step. I mean, I know it is old school, Natalia. I know that it's, it's how you got into uh, fitness. It's how I got into fitness. And I am on a search constantly for new step classes. And they're kind of phasing them out at, at gyms near where I am. Yes, step aerobics. I'm impressed you still do it because it's hard to even find those classes. I was kind of intrigued that like many things from the 90s that are coming back now, I was in a class at a studio called Anna Kaiser Studios and all of a sudden they're like, break out the steps. And it wasn't just the steps as like a prop. They were fully doing <laughs> the old school choreography that you and I probably both remember from the 90s, like all those crazy names for different steps. They, they're doing it again. So maybe, maybe we will have a step right Renaissance and we can participate in. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. All right. It makes me happy. All right. Let's talk about Jack LaLanne first, because I, yeah. I thought your, your chapter on LaLanne was super interesting. I remember my mother and grandmother exercised with him. I had no idea that before LaLanne could really catch on, he had to convince women that it was healthy to exercise. What's the story? Tell me about his history. 
It's Jacqueline is so fascinating. And you know, you said in your intro that there's this kind of tension in the exercise world, like we're evangelists, but like, if you think hard enough about it, you know that there's a little bit of a dark side to that evangelism. And Jack LaLanne embodies that so well. So here's the deal with Jack LaLanne. He comes out of the muscle beach world, which is by the late 1940s. You know, it's a tourist attraction that people go and see these strong men and some women lifting weights and throwing Throwing women in the air, doing all of these acrobatics. But it's still kind of a weird subculture. Like people go there really to watch strong people exercise, not to think they should do so themselves. So Jack LaLanne goes and tries to pitch a TV show around exercise. And studio executives are like, what? Nobody would ever watch an exercise TV show, much less put aside whatever they're doing that day in order to exercise with you. Like, no way. And he basically had a belief and he against all odds, launches this TV show that was, you know, a little bit by luck at the same time that TV ownership is just exploding in America. And the premise was basically that ladies, because his uh, audience was homemakers, put aside your, uh, your ironing and your laundry, and we're going to exercise together. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a really big deal because on the one hand, it's like me time, right? These ladies are putting aside their housework and they're like, I'm going to exercise. And he has this really positive framing that, yes, this is about weight loss. And he has all these funny cues, like time to work the front porch. Um, you know, he calls the body like the names of the of like the house. But um, there's this flip side to it, which I think we can't ignore, which is that much like housework, he's kind of important in making exercise a requirement of ladyhood, right? So he always has these kind of like maxims that sound inspiring on the like on on the face of them like he's like you know um you can be young forever you don't have to give in to spreading hips or looking old but the flip side is and if you do look old or you don't have energy you have no one to blame but yourself because you should be exercising with me <laughs> right. and so it's this really like amazing set of sources to understand this shifting attitude about exercise from something so weird that he couldn't get green light greenlit for a tv show to something that's slowly but surely both becoming amazing and empowering and fun, but also being like, if you don't do it, you are bad and lazy. And I think we have both of that. We have all of that still with us today. That is so true. Yeah, I just, I want to read a couple sentences from this part sure. of the book because, I mean, you've really captured his, I don't know, allure and somewhat, what, eccentricity, I guess. I don't know. Here it is. Clad in his signature muscle shirt, biceps exposed, Lelaine rejected ageism. You know what age means? Law of nature is use or lose. If you don't use it, you lose it. Age means absolutely nothing. Lelaine actually thought he was going to live forever in a way, right? He kind of rejected the idea yeah. that you have to, the body does break down and you get old. Yeah. And there's something so wonderful and inspiring about that. I mean, particularly for women, I cannot emphasize how much at that time women past like the age of 30, especially if they were moms, were considered to be like washed up, no longer desirable, <laughs> certainly not people who should be exercising. So there's something and, and old people on the whole were not considered to be kind of physically vital and active. So there is something really wonderful about that to kind of extend the realm of who can can be fit and should exercise to older people. 
On the other hand, you know, you see that kind of double-edged sword, even in that comment there, right? That, you know, age mm -hmm. is nothing, basically use it or lose it. Like it's your fault if you're aging. And I think, um, I think that tension, like I said, is still with us. I mean, I'm thinking of Barbara Ehrenreich, the wonderful writer who I cite later on, who she writes in her book, or wrote, RIP, um, Natural Causes about aging, that she realized that people kind of in her social class, once they retire, she's like, I think my new job is going to the gym. And she's like, I'm not sure that's what I want to do. But that's new to that generation. And it's kind of a mixed blessing, as she, I think, aptly pointed out. When do you think, I'm just curious about what your sense is of when it changed that you turned 50 and maybe you'd, you know, you'd been in a marriage for a long time. Maybe your kids were starting to have kids of their own. When do you think it changed that that was an age that didn't mean you were old or, or even in some cases, middle age? Because I remember my grandma who was young when I was born, seeming old, you know, as she hit her mid fifties. Now I'm past my mid fifties and I don't feel old at all. And, uh, and you know, part of that is about exercise. What's your sense, Natalia, about when that changed? That's a great question. You know, I can't totally pinpoint it, but I will say that it's in kind of the 60s and 70s that you see exercise boosters and people writing books being like, you're 40, your life isn't over yet. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I didn't think it was. I'm 44. But I would say that 50, as you bring up, it's really not until almost like the 1990s that that's considered an age that isn't over the hill, so to speak. Um, and that, you know, I, there's a much more contemporary example. It's just a couple of years ago um, when Jennifer Lopez and Shakira oh, took the yeah. stage at the halftime mm -hmm. show at the Super Bowl, both like 50 or 51 or so. And I remember, again, there was that same kind of conversation of one, holy moly, like I think some of the Golden Girls were in their 50s when they started <laughs> filming that show. Like this is not yeah. the Golden Girls are like shaking their booties. But on the other hand, and I think this is again, like not to beat the a dead horse here. But like, I think on the other hand, some people were like, are you kidding me? I'm 50 and I'm supposed to look like that. And I think exercise culture has <laughs> right. a lot, a lot to do with that. All right. I mean, the standard, right? There's a, there's an upside and downside to Jennifer Lopez setting the standard for your mid fifties. Oh yeah. Well, I think on that front, you know, one of the things I talk about a little after Lillane in the 1960s is the birth of the archetype of the hot wife. And, mm. um, that mm. is a part of this kind of double-edged sword. And I talk about that in relationship to another TV personality, a woman named Debbie Drake, mm -hmm. and she would, um, target her programs to the misses who still wants to be whistle bait. And I think that is such an interesting <laughs> framing because there was this idea that to be married and a mom definitely meant you were unsexy. And she was like, no, 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 no. Um, you can be that too. But again, it brings up that kind of, uh, you know, the tension between empowerment and kind of pressure. That's what I was going to ask you about. So Debbie Drake seems to bring together this idea that not only can you be physically fit and feeling healthy and attractive, but the, mm -hmm. there is a sense of empowerment with that. I mean, she sounds like she channels some of that. Tell us a little more about her. 
Yeah. So Debbie Drake was, I believe, a secretary from Corpus Christi who talked about having figure trouble after her children were born. She'd been very kind of scrawny as a child, and then she gained weight um, after she was pregnant. And so she starts as a kind of local personality and then comes to run this kind of empire, the biggest part of it being um, a television show, at which was Exercise with Debbie Drake. And she certainly, I think, was into empowerment in the sense that she was like, you can be sexy and you should exercise. And also she was really a formidable entrepreneur. But I mean, she is the definition in many ways of cringe when we look at a lot of her, um, a lot of her framing. I mean, she literally had an album that was titled like how to keep your husband happy. And that's like 1963 <laughs> or 64. Yeah. And the cover, you can see this online. I think I've posted it on, on my Instagram. The cover is of a man, you know, in street clothes, kind of relaxing and and dreaming. And in the thought bubbles, there's Debbie Drake in like seven different contortions doing her exercises. <laughs> and so it's so flagrantly about exercising for, you know, the male gaze, so to speak, that mm. I think from today's perspective, it's like, oh my God, come on. But as a historian, I try to think about like, well, what did this mean at that time? And I think it, she is a really important figure in one, being a woman who's taking that leadership. Like it's not Lelaine, who's a man kind of telling you what to do. Being a woman doing that, saying, yes, if you're a mom and a wife, you can be sexy, being a businesswoman. And she had to sort of fit in the mood of that moment where you had to be kind of hyper feminine to be promoting exercise. And it fit more into almost like the beauty and industry, um, as many early women's fitness programs did, rather than like, hey, girls, get strong. We're going to, you know, go play sports and be tough and take over the world. It was not, um, it was not that sensibility at all. But we kind of needed her to lay the foundation. What I think you're speaking to here, which is, which is something I found really interesting about your book, is the maturing of empowerment and how the different mm -hmm. dimensions of how women understood and, and I guess kind of the permission structure for what empowerment could be, right, as mm -hmm. it matured. I mean, the, the fitness industry seems to track along with that that maturing. What would you say about that? I think that's absolutely right. I love the way you frame that with permission structure around empowerment. I mean, one of the reasons that I was drawn to the fitness industry is not only because I have kind of adult onset athleticism and I'm a big participant in it as an instructor and as a consumer, but also because to me as a historian, What's going on with women and physicality and empowerment is kind of existing apart from the a more conventional story around women's sports, um, which I think is no less important. It's crucially important. But the story around women's sports kind of fits into more um, like uh, more clear cut definitions about like women taking control over their bodies, claiming access and, you know, that they should be able to take up space in these male defined um, athletic spaces. And to me, fitness, which is a realm carved out really primarily by women in a lot of ways, is a lot more halting and a little bit more complicated. And you do see, as you say, this kind of um, much more gradual embrace of empowerment 
often empowerment to a lot of these um, fitness programs, people who participate and who are promoters like Debbie Drake is actually like empowering you to embody some sort of very conventional ideal that no one in 2023 would consider so empowering. <laughs> but that shifts over time. And, you know, we've talked about Lillane, we've talked about Drake, like you, you I think another huge important transitional um, figure is Judy Shepard Massette. Um, so we can talk about more about jazzercise if you want, but you do see that gradual shift. But that also is really important. Yeah, let me remind listeners here, if you've just tuned in, I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my Friday book show. And I'm in conversation today with Natalia Melman Petrozella. We're talking about her book, Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. And if you've just gotten into this conversation, you hear us talking about how this sense of women and empowerment tracked along as our ideas of what empowerment were matured. And that, that begins, you know, Lelaine, Jack Lelaine and before him, right up through a lot of the female mavens of exercise. Yes, we're going to talk about Jane Fonda. We are going to talk about jazzercise, but it's an interesting conversation. Um, Natalia, let, let's talk about jazzercise for a minute here. Then I want to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your phrase that you became uh, interested in adult onset exercise because I know this didn't come naturally. <laughs> did, did, did you oh, no. did you get into jazzercise? <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about your history. Too. I'm a uh, I'm a little young for jazzercise. So, well, okay. jazzercise is still here. I shouldn't say that, but I um, really got into this in the '90s with step aerobics was my gateway mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. to fitness culture. <laughs> And so, okay, so, but jazzercise, as you point out, has probably mm -hmm. endured when a lot of these exercise trends have seemed to kind of flame and then flame out. What, what is it you think about jazzercise mm -hmm. that has endured? Yeah, well, I think jazzercise has really evolved over the years. Um, it sometimes has the image of what it was in the 1980s, which is that quintessential 80s aerobics, uh, you know, dance, cardio, um, format that a lot of people associate with Jane Fonda, but it's really changed a lot since then. So they have hit classes and martial arts and, you know, they've really updated the choreography, no more grapevines, um, so to speak. But I think that, you know, one of the reasons it took off when it did, it was very early to do um, kind of dance cardio aerobics. Um, and that was very resonant with women. And I think that, you know, creating those spaces for women to come together, to spend their own money, to get off of the so-called sidelines where they'd often watch their daughters doing a dance class and to kind of do a workout which was simple but also sweaty. Like I think that is sometimes underappreciated. Like there were these sort of dance-inspired quasi-fitness programs that existed before, but they much more kind of came from a much more controlled sensibility, almost more ballet to than jazz, which is a kind of more expressive. I don't want to knock ballet. Ballet is amazing and very hard, but um, the, the choreography of jazzercise is like much bigger and I think more accessible to a lot of people. And I think that that was really appealing to a lot of women in the 1970s and then onward who were part of that kind of second wave feminist sensibility, but maybe not 
about so much in the physical realm that they were taking advantage of Title IX to go like, you know, join a sports team. And so Jazzercise, which was founded by Judy Massette, who's this like gorgeous, slim, blonde dancer, was both radical in what it offered, but also was like, hey, well, if you end up looking like her, you're pretty conventionally gorgeous. <laughs> and like, that's not deciding to be a kind of jock and, you know, um, take a, uh, in some ways a more dramatic turn. So I was kind of really perfect for the moment. And it's its evolution, which has allowed it to endure. Okay, a word about you. You uh -huh. write <laughs> in the introduction or in the author's note, I did not arrive at this project naturally. I grew up in the Boston suburbs in the 80s and 90s, and I felt in intimidated by, averse to and apathetic about the exercise activities available to me, sports and dance. All seemed to require talent and technique I lacked. And in auditions and tryouts where other kids shone, I only envisioned embarrassment. In fact, you hated Fayed which is pretty shocking considering you've just signed up for a half marathon. So, so what, yeah. what was it about exercise, dance, sports that, um, well, that didn't appeal, turned you well, off? Well, one, yeah, I didn't, I was not naturally talented at all. And the, um, formats that were available to me, you know, whether it was phys ed or, or dance or, or, um, you know, kind of tryout sports all seemed kind of geared towards kids who were maybe more naturally uh, talented than I was. They also all for better or for worse, whether I'm, tr whether it's true or not seem kind of exclusive. Like you get cut from a team, right? You're the mm -hmm. one going in the wrong direction in class, et cetera. And <laughs> PE at that time, less so than in the fifties or sixties, but PE was still like you go run the time and everybody sees your scores. It's still get in line and do the rope climb and the people who can't do it are sort of, um, you know, left behind right in front of the class. And so all of that I found just totally intimidating. And then also, this is a little bit more philosophical. I don't think I would have said it this way when I was a, you know, elementary schooler or even a high schooler, but I was like such a brainy kid. And I think I really subscribed to this idea that like body and mind were sort of disconnected. And I was lucky to be a books girl <laughs> And like, you know, at least I'm smart. And so I kind of don't need that. And like, that is a false dichotomy, but it is definitely one that I bought into at the time. So that changed. If you want to know, I'll give away, you know, part of the, yeah, the author's note there. Yeah, I do. That changed. Interestingly, like it all kind of came to a head. It was my junior year of high school. So 94, 95. And I was like, enough of this. I'm so stressed out about going to PE, which is so stupid that I'm stressed out about this. And like, to give you a sense of my physical inability, the issue was not even the activity in the class. It's that the teacher would have us like kind of shimmy up these bleachers and sit there and get instructions for the class. And I was like so weak that I couldn't like hoist myself up there. I had no upper body strength. I mean, it's embarrassing. Now I can do pull-ups. Like, but um, so I was like, enough. So I read, it was a big public school. I read the uh, student rights and responsibilities manual. It says you can do an independent study in phys ed. I said, okay. So I go to the department head and I said, what does this mean? They're like, no one's ever asked us this. And it turned out you could do something new, which was personal training, which my parents were like, no way rich people do that. Um, or you could go to a group fitness class. I didn't even really know what that was, but we belonged to a community center that had mm. stuff classes. And so I walked in there and it seemed to me, I discovered, you know, there was an, ex there was a, something called fitness, which was not sport. And pretty quickly, I realized this is not only better than PE, but I love this. I don't just tolerate <laughs> it. And you know, the rest is kind of history. 
What do you think when you hear people who have walked into a step class or like a, a high impact interval training class where there's, you know, blasting music and there is kind of a rhythm to it? I hear so many people say, I'm not coordinated. I wouldn't be able to do that. That, that kind of seemed to have defined you and yet no. I know. Well, I think it's, it is totally true. And of course, group fitness is like one of the most intimidating places to so many people. The kind of cliched way that most, um, that people often write about this is like, you know, some writer walks into a class and is like, I was going against the music. I was so, you know, out of shape or uncoordinated. So of course, it's a site for a lot of intimidation for people. I think for me, it was really, really important that I didn't know anybody there. So I was just mm -hmm. this kid in the back. I could kind of be anonymous. Whereas in school, that whole hierarchy of sports and phys ed and all that, it felt so connected to kind of the social dynamics of the school. So the stakes were kind of higher. So I like that anonymity. Um, and then, you know, I think the fact that even though there are hierarchies in every environment, there it kind of felt like you know, there, no one was going to get cut. We were all kind of there doing our thing. You know, eventually I moved to the front row, which was sort of, I guess, like varsity, <laughs> but there was no real pressure to do that. And I remember those early instructors. I wish I remembered their names because they also thought it was like kind of cool. This teenager was there and were very welcoming. So it had a lot to do with the attitude of the teacher. I also think, you know, I had always thought dance was really cool. Like I loved watching MTV and all that, but it just seemed so beyond me. And of course, Step and its cousins um, are all effectively like choreographed workouts. So it, right. I think, right. yeah, like I had instructors who no matter how uncoordinated we are, we were, made us feel like we were in a music video. And to me, that was just so much cooler than, um, you know, than just getting a workout. And so I, as an, as a workout instructor, which is, you know, some, a significant part of my life, I have tried to like bring that sensibility that's inclusive and accessible, but makes you feel like you're part of something cool. Cause I think that's really, that's really what hooked me. So, so if I told you that I've walked into workout classes in gyms in different parts of the country, and it was like high school, mm -hmm. would you know what I meant? A hundred percent. And yeah. that is so unfortunate. So if I'm reading you correctly, like there are absolutely these workout environments that have their own social hierarchies and their right. own kind of in-group and everyone's wearing the same leggings. And so only so-and-so can sit in the front row. And there's a whole language sometimes to, um, you know, participating in the class that can be very exclusive. Actually, aside, you and I have talked about STEP. And when I started this research, I interviewed some people. I'm like, so why did STEP really go away. And they said, you know, it got too complicated. Like it got to mm. be that when you would go to mm. a step class, like there was such a high barrier to entry because as you and I remember, remember the names of all those moves? It was like a step, <laughs> rocking horse, pendulum, <laughs> around the world, yeah. like, you know, TikTok, whatever. And like, right. you can't, that's very hard to follow if you're not, and, and actually dangerous if you me mess it up because you can like trip over the step. And so I think that that sort of, you know, both the, sometimes the excessive complexity of an exercise program itself, but also sometimes the deliberate cultivation of an in-group can be really alienating. And I'll say on that front, one thing that I think is really unfortunate about certain aspects of fitness culture and certain businesses is that like sometimes kind of a key aspect of what they're marketing or selling is that exclusivity, oh, you know, absolutely. often with 
Yeah, like sometimes, oh, like, oh, you're part of our posse, you know, um, and they write that on T-shirts or I've written before CrossFit, which, you know, something everybody has really strong feelings about. I actually don't have super strong feelings about, but at one point um, there was at least, there were some boxes, which is what they call their gyms, um, where they were printing T-shirts and they had like a series of numbers on the front. And the numbers would mean nothing to people who weren't kind of initiates. But if you knew what that was, it's the reps for workout of the day. And so people hmm. like walk around wearing those things. And to me, that's such an example of like, oh, you're in or you're out. And that in-groupness is something people are selling as opposed to, hey, come one, come all. Here's a place you can we can get fit together, which some places are doing. But yeah, some are like the worst part of high school. I agree. I mean, you have taught at very high-end gyms, right? I mean, you've mm -hmm. seen this elitism, you know, in action. I know people that would never walk into a high-end gym, even though they could mm -hmm. afford the membership yeah. because of this, you know, just this strong atmosphere of there's something elite about us. It's often pretty white, right? Pretty mm -hmm. high income. So having taught in these places, tell me what you observe. And, you know, I mean, those high-end gyms seem to thrive too. They're all over the place and growing. Yes. I, so I taught for years at Equinox, which is, I think, in some ways a category setter for a certain kind of elitism, unfortunately. Mm. Um, you mm. know, I, I interviewed, um, one of the founders of Equinox in my book, Lavinia Erico, really, you know, smart businesswoman. And, um, she talked about the fact how when they, um, started that gym, that there were people who she knew who could afford it. But like you said, wouldn't go in and would tell her like, well, I'm going to join like, you know, a kind of lower end club to get in shape in order to be able to go to this gym. And that, that was like in the early nineties. And that was actually, again, a much more aggressively promoted than today. There's another famous gym here in New York city um, that was called the vertical club. Ironically, it's now in a, an Equinox location. And I read some of the coverage of it in the 1980s. And I mean, they interviewed a, a manager and I'm paraphrasing who basically said, Oh, there are no fat people here, you know? And so they are kind of Whoa. really, yeah. So like exclusivity based on fitness level, on size, like you said, on race, age, et cetera. Um, I think that has gone away a little bit, but not that much and especially not in the marketing. So Equinox, not to pick on Equinox, but just to use it as an example, in working there, I often found that the marketing was much more elitist and exclusive than the actual experience of it. Like obviously really? everybody would have, huh. yeah, like, uh, I mean, granted, and this is maybe a little in the weeds, especially for an audience that is not in, in Manhattan, but I taught downtown mostly. <laughs> and um, downtown is a sort of more of a mix of people. And one of the interesting things there is that some people were actually not in the affluence demographic, but it was like performers and people who like, you know, really their image meant a lot. And so they'd like get ready in the locker rooms, et cetera. So that's kind of, you know, it was a little bit more mixed, but you know, what I thought was interesting, and this is still the case, they lean so hard into the elitism of their marketing. I mean, to the point mm. that this year they caught a little bit of flack because they actually didn't sell any new memberships on January 1st because they're like, oh, we don't want the Januaries. Like, you know, we only want like the hardcore people. And then of course the imagery are like supermodels who ironically barely look like they have any muscle on them. I'm like, you know, um, but that said, the people who were in the clubs, yes, it was certainly a more elite environment than when I teach at YMCA's or in public schools, mm -hmm. which I've spent a lot of time doing too. 
but it didn't totally reflect that. And I think it didn't totally reflect that because we have seen the expansion of the gym going demographic to certainly include older people for the most part. Um, yeah. but also honestly, anyone who can afford it, which is pretty sad because it's very exclusive in terms of socioeconomics, but probably a little bit more expansive in terms of size, race, sexuality, and so forth. You know, I've been when you're describing that, I'm thinking about my own experience. I belong to a community center and a gym. And the community center mm -hmm. is so much is the quality of the exercise, you know, mm -hmm. the top of the line? No, but it's so much more elevating and inspiring. I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. I mean, the class is full of people of all different ages and backgrounds, all different reasons for being there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just, I was thinking how antiseptic. I walked into this gym with a friend the other day and it felt so sterile. And mm -hmm. I really missed what I love about that community center, even though there's sometimes in the classes, I'm like, I wish this was harder. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I totally know. I mean, I have seen some of the most vital communities around fitness crop up at YMCAs or rec centers mm -hmm. or people who are attending, you know, um, this is in my research more, but in a, a class that took place in a church basement, which of course was where it happened before there were group uh, fitness classes that were built into a lot of gyms. And so, yeah, there's no, the quality of community can often be much higher when you do, when you have a clientele that is showing up for more than just, you know, the fluffiness of the towels. So I think that is really worth <laughs> thinking about as well. And also, honestly, all of these examples really bear out how much what people find valuable in their exercise experiences is the community as much yeah. as like the quality of the calorie burn, you know? Absolutely. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to uh, Big Books and Bold Ideas. And I'm in conversation today with Natalia Melman Petrozella about her book, Fit Nation. You can hear us comparing notes on our own personal experience, but the book is also full of some really interesting history about exercise and fitness trends in America. Who some of the who some of the more radical uh, figures were over the years? Who really made a difference where we are today in contemporary fitness? Fit Nation: The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise obsession. Okay, first I want to ask you, and we're going to talk about Jane mm -hmm. Fonda. First I want to ask you whether you uh, caught the series physical. I think Rose I Byrne. Okay. Yeah. Let's describe mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So um, Physical, it's this Apple TV series, and it is about this woman, Sheila, played by Rose Byrne, who um, is the wife of this kind of grandiose lefty guy who is simultaneously like very simultaneously very invested in his own progressive politics but very kind of dismissive of her and like kind of like kind of like a brochalist i think we would call him today um, right so sheila is a mom um as well and she sort of has all these personal struggles i would say major trigger warning um the eating disorder stuff in this show yeah. is like yeah knocks you on your back. It's so vividly mm -hmm. um, and grow like really explicitly presented. But anyway, the story is effectively of Ro uh, Rose Byrne's character, Sheila, finding fitness, becoming a kind of accidental fitness star, releasing a VHS tape and becoming um, a pretty big deal in the aerobics world. And people are always asking me like, you know, who is this based on? I would say yeah. it's like, it's, there's a lot of Jane Fonda in there ah, because Jane Fonda- 
yeah, Jane Fonda is Southern California. She was married to Tom Hayden, um, mm-hmm. who was a, a the founder, one of the founders of Students for Democratic Society. Few people know that she actually started the workout in order to fund the Campaign for Economic Democracy, which was his <laughs> um, outfit. Um, and then, and something I write about, I write about all of this in the book, but she writes in her memoir how he was so dismissive of this exercise aspect of her career, even as it was paying the bills for his, you know, supposedly more serious activism that she was like, enough is enough. I've like, you know, funneled you millions of dollars, um, be gone. So there's a little bit of that story, but it's not exactly the same because of course, Jane Fonda was already a very famous actress at that point. And so, and this also takes place in San Diego, not in Los Angeles. And so I think there's a little bit of Judy Shepard Massette, the founder of Jazzercise Mm. in here as well. But Honestly, it's pretty fictionalized, um, but uh, I do think that Jane Fonda nugget is in there. And you didn't ask me if I liked it or not. I think it's totally gripping. I only wish I'd been a consultant on it. Yeah, but they did great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it brings up, I, I, you know, we don't need to like unpack it. And it's been a while since I watched it, but um, they do a wonderful job at unpacking so many things going on in fitness culture. The connection with like pornography, like the people who mm-hmm. she meets up, the, the <laughs> workout crew who she kind of teams up with um, to make their first video. Like he's also, I think, kind of shooting porn. And that was so common in the Southern California, like early VHS scene that these things were connected on the malls. I mean, it's just like, I really recommend it. Um, I had nothing to do with it, but I totally recommend it. I want to play a little bit of Jane Fonda's uh, workout routine. And so just, Mm -hmm. just to set the scene here as we cue it up, Jane Fonda, if you haven't seen the DVDs, I owned, God, I don't know, like five (laughs) of them. Um, You know, she'd be in a workout space and she'd have a group of women, almost always women around her, doing the routine along with her, all dressed to the nines in these great workout outfits. And um, she would take you through kind of the warm up right through to the sweating part of it and and then to the cool down. And I think they were super valuable. Natalia, what do you want to say about Fonda before we listen to her? Oh, it's so important. I mean, I think one, we talked about empowerment earlier on in the interview, and she's sort of like another step further where by the time that she establishes the workout, the first studio opens in 1979, but she has, she defines as a feminist. She sees Mm -hmm. exercise as something that has um, really played a role in a much more healthier relationship to her body. She had struggled with disordered eating for much of her life. And to her aerobics and the kind of community of women who come together in this way, that's a kind of feminist act. And so, um, yeah, I am a Fonda fan. Okay. Let's listen to a little bit of Jane Fonda's workout. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. Let's go. Stand with your feet a little more than hip distance apart. Hips are under, stomach in, chest is lifted, shoulders back and down, knees are bent over the toes. Ready? Inhale. Up and down. Inhale, knees are bent right over the toes and down. Big exhale. And inhale. And down. This is the last time. Up. And down. Shoulder rolls to the right. One. 
Natalia, were you doing that in the studio? <laughs> yes, let me as catch my breath as I'm rolling my <laughs> shoulders back. I can't hear the 32 counts and not start moving. I think it's in my body by now. <laughs> I know what you mean. You know, here's the other thing that when I was preparing for our conversation, I, I was watching some of her workout stuff online. I was thinking it really humanized Jane Fonda too. I mean, here she is as a mm-hmm. movie star and yet – you know, she's taking us just in this really welcoming, friendly way through the workout. I, I think I I felt like I I knew her in some ways, in a, in a kind of way that I never think about other movie stars at all. Does that make sense? Yes, that totally makes sense. To me, that's one of the biggest contributions that Jane Fonda made. So first of all, like, you know, stepping back to what you said about feeling like you knew her and she was this movie star who became accessible. I mean, she was at first pretty nervous about making this. She didn't want to make an exercise video because she was like, no, I'm like a movie star, like studios release, you know, sort of, you know, pre pre styled images of me. This is so intimate. And I think that that's not because she was particularly prissy. That was a time when celebrities' images were much more managed. And even Mm. though they were exercising, you know, behind the scenes to maintain their bodies and whatnot, um, it wasn't something that you'd be seeing in magazines. And of course, there was no social media for them to present themselves, you know, coming out of an exercise class, much less, you know, being the face of an exercise brand. So that's really interesting for that moment in history and the kind of like privateness of exercise at that point, even though so many celebrities and other people were doing it, um, it was really a kind of behind the scenes thing. So I think that's important. And then something else that I write about, and again, this is drawing a lot on on Fonda's memoir and, and other places she's reflected on her life. Is she talks about how when she would meet people in public who um, knew her through her exercise videos, there was an intimacy or a presumed intimacy to their connection that was so far, or so different from, you know, oh, I saw you in this movie and you were amazing. And she realized, like, she, I think she talks about like one husband of a woman who says like, oh my gosh, you're the first voice I hear in the morning because every day I wake up and my wife is doing your workout in the living room. <laughs> And I hear you. And, you know, just people, I think when you exercise with people and you have that connection to their body and they're hearing your voice and they're looking at you all day, there's just another level of kind of connection. And she's very articulate in in spelling that out. And I think uh, she was a pioneer in that regard. Can you draw a direct line from Jane Fonda to Richard Simmons, who, I mean, just became... I mean, he was like a whirling dervish of self-marketing, yes. and it and it really worked. I mean, what's the connection between the two? Yeah. So it's not even a chronological line because we're pretty much around at the same time. So oh, okay. Richard Simmons starts his workout studio called the Anatomy Asylum, I believe in 1974. And interestingly, he and Jane Fonda have similar roots in their workout uh, trajectories because they both went to exercise at a studio called Gilda Marx's. Um, I think mm, Body by Gilda. Mm-hmm. Body Design by Gilda, I think is what it was called. The right, the right name is in my book. Um, and anyway, so that's where Jane Fonda actually learned to get all into this. And she hired one of Gilda's instructors, a woman named Lenny Kasdan, to go start the workout with her and 
Kasdan was really like the person running it on the ground. But Richard Simmons went there, loved it. I mean, we all know what Richard Simmons looked like. He was this really kind of quirky, flamboyant character. And he writes in his memoir, because of course I've read all of these memoirs by now. <laughs> he writes in his memoir about getting there and he's like, oh my God, this has nothing to do with these gyms, these men's gyms where all these dudes are so serious in their sweatpants. This is like, you know, flamboyant, not flamboyance, but exuberance. And he was singing and he loved mm. the music and et cetera. And then Gilda Marks comes to him by his telling and says, you are not welcome back. No one wants a man in class with us. And he, by his telling, is heartbroken and goes off to find his own exercise studio, which is much more like come one, come all. One, you know, he his big story is that he was obese as a child and sort of overcame it. He was never out, but he definitely had a kind of flamboyant self-presentation that wasn't conventionally masculine, such that there are quite a few gay men who said they felt really at home in that in that place as well. And then what's the connection between Jane and Richard Simmons? Well, they're both in Southern California at the same time offering these workouts. But in terms of like their actual connection, they both actually were working with the same VHS distributor. And Jane Fonda mm. really just like creates a new category when in 1982, she releases her workout on VHS. And it's like, oh my God, kind of like that Jack LaLanne moment. Like people are going to do this. And now a lot of people have VCRs. And so they're going to do this like again and again and again and again. And also think about it. VHS was a really, um, fitness VHS was a really popular category because people would actually yeah. buy those because you'll do the same yeah. one again and again. It has to be your favorite movie to actually buy like a v v VHS, which were very expensive. They were like $50, $60 to actually in $1982. You'd have to really love a movie to buy it again and again. So anyway, uh, Richard Simmons gets picked up by the same distributor as Jane Fonda. And he writes about how he was always super intimidated, you know, Dick and Jane, so to speak, that he was this like, you know, really kind of not clumsy, but you know, he's got the frizzy hair and he's not glamorous <laughs> like this movie star. Yeah. But he says, you know, we were both so popular and we both attracted very different sorts of people to our um, classes offering, I think, a similar sense of sort of like high energy, all inclusive community through movement. And one thing just with, with uh, uh, Richard Simmons, I think is really important. So Jane Fonda is often criticized because she was so slim and beautiful that she mm -hmm. intimidated a lot of people. Richard Simmons uh, really, really sort of made the um, fat demographic feel seen. And I say fat not to cast aspersions, but in the sort of reclaimed sense of the word. And it's interesting because his big thing was like, you know, I used to be fat and I lost all this weight and you can come into a gym. Like you are welcome here. Mm -hmm. I want to exercise with you. And, you know, contemporary critics are very harsh on Richard Simmons because for understandable reasons, because he basically was saying like, I can fix you too. Come mm -hmm. here. You don't have to be miserable and fat. And so contemporary people are often like, why are we equating fat with misery? And why does every fat person have to work out? And I am generally on board with that perspective. But I think it is really important when we think about the history of the fitness industry and how fat people were often seen as quote unquote beyond saving or like not worth even targeting to. Richard Simmons says, I see you. I want to help you. And he was really adored um, by a lot of people who did his videos and um, who came to the studio as well. So I think that's kind of interesting when we think about the expansion of fitness culture and also sometimes a kind of problematic expansion in terms of what was being sold and who was being included and how.
Yeah, you say the Los Angeles Times described him as, quote, a kind of freaked out Jack LaLanne, <laughs> mm-hmm. determined not to run, quote, another phony hangout for the beautiful people. You know, you've alluded to something that I wanted to ask you about, um, mm-hmm. the the body positivity movement and how that, I guess, intersects with our Fit Nation America's exercise obsession. Mm-hmm. Where where do they meet? Well, I think a very good thing that has happened in the course of um, you know my adult life is that there's been a real pushback on some of the really awful tendencies in fitness culture, many of which I've experienced firsthand. I mean, I talked about falling in love with those step classes, but from the minute I was sort of old enough to be a critical observer of my own experience, I'm like, well, I love this, but why are they always talking about like working off dessert or whether I was mm-hmm. bad this weekend or the way that bikini season's right around the corner, so I better be good. And really, it's uh, unfortunate, but intrinsic to so much of fitness culture has been this kind of body hatred that like, the reason it's so popular is because they're constantly selling you a message that you can and should be thinner. And if you just buy this product, your body will be better. Um, And kind of framing it in that moral way. And so the kind of now, uh, you call it body positive movement, you could, there are a lot of ways to describe it. And people debate these terms. But I think there's been a really welcome pushback on that um, that has said, no, 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 like we can't hate ourselves into happiness or health. We need something different. Now, that said, I am very much a proponent of exercise and what I call kind of the opportunity for people to exercise on their own terms. I don't believe that because there are all these damaging and deleterious aspects of the fitness industry that kind of promote body hatred, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm actually really inspired by people that are saying, you know, movement is actually probably intrinsically wonderful and really healthy. And we should probably all be doing more of that. But let's be really deliberate about how we engage and the language that we use and the kind of community that we create. And I think to me, that's the right approach because sometimes I am turned off and I think it's really damaging with a kind of like you know, reductive perspective, which is like all fitness culture is body hating and like an instrument of the patriarchy and we must reject it all. I'm like, I don't think that's the bold act of resistance that you think it is. Like no one is going to do better by rejecting kind of fitness culture, but I think we should be smart and deliberate about rejecting the parts that are about, um, you know, kind of fanning self-hatred. We don't need that. There is, there is good stuff going on out there and let's amplify it. I'm really, I'm really glad you said that because I mean, the science, and I think there was just a new study out about sitting and how beneficial it is to even get up for a five minute, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, spate of movement. I, I just read a, a study that comes out of a British journal about that links mortality to the begin, to the ability to balance on one foot. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it is fitness balance, all the, all the benefits of exercise, I'm glad you're saying, should not be subsumed into this idea that, as you write, there's a lot of negativity and exclusivity and elitism that accompanies Mm -hmm. the exercise movement, which brings me, Natalia, to Peloton. I really want to talk to you about what's, you've written about Peloton. There's been some developments with the company since I think your book went to print. Mm -hmm. What, 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 why did Peloton catch on the way it did? What does it have to do with the pandemic? And then let's talk about what's happening. 
Yeah, Peloton has a lot to do with the pandemic, although of course it was be around beforehand. So the way I kind of think of the Peloton phenomenon, and I am a user, but not like a super user uh, uh, at all. I think it's good, but I'm not obsessed with it. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Peloton really exists in this much longer trajectory of kind of home fitness, um, of course, because of digital technologies taking off in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years in a really incredible and rapid way, um, Peloton really, I think, has the best technology out there. So, you know, for years we've had Nordic tracks and Thigh Masters and all of these things. And then Peloton was able to create, I think, a really high tech, wonderful user experience um, through a bike. That was like all well and good. And then the pandemic happened. And, you know, even people who were very much in person exercisers, of course, were like the perfect. Um, clients for Peloton. And so it had this huge boom in the pandemic, I think for very understandable reasons, and then has really tapered off. I mean, as much as I said, I'm not like a huge Peloton like proselytizer. Um, I do think some of the claims that like, oh, Peloton like tumbles from grace. I think they're a little bit overwrought because there's no way Peloton could have sustained that kind of astronomical growth when literally all the gyms were closed that it did. And I know that I think Peloton has done um, in many ways wonderful things in terms of creating a convenient, relatively accessible workout um, that, you know, is a, a part of a lot of people's lives even if they have gone back to in-person fitness. One other thing I want to say about Peloton from a cultural perspective, which I think is just fascinating and remarkable and really, a, I don't know how much of this was their own doing and how much of it was just kind of the pandemic, but if you mm-hmm. think to 2019 when there was, they had a commercial in the holidays, you might remember, do you remember this commercial I'm going to talk about? <laughs> I don't like, watch much uh, like okay. commercial TV, not to be a jerk, so, but uh, I can't no, stand no, the commercials. <laughs> okay, so they Peloton had this commercial in 2019 where um, a woman gets a Peloton as a gift from her husband. And then she goes from this sort of like timid, mousy person to this very oh. empowered woman through her wellness journey. And it was a very, okay. very controversial um, vi- uh, commercial because it, one, it was like, what kind of husband gives her his already apparently, you know, thin? wife, an exercise (laughs) bike. And then, you know, they're so rich and this is, you know, a $2,500 present and she doesn't even seem like she wants it. And then she's sort of like (laughs) casting aside all her responsibilities to like ride more and more. And people, it was like perfect for internet rage, right? Like people love to kind of skewer the privilege and all the rest. And that was a really interesting um, conversation about that ad. Um, One, because people reacted so kind of reflexively negatively to this idea that the husband gave the wife this present, like he's imposing on her kind of Debbie Drake style, like you need to work out to look hot. (laughs) To me, I was a little surprised about that. Like I was like, haven't we moved beyond that? I know a lot of people who would be excited to get a $2,000 bike um, (laughs) and not assume that it's because their husband, you know, thinks their body needs needs fixing. Um, But I, I, I don't digress, but I go into maybe too much detail. Anyway, it really is skewered because it's seen as like a rich person's plaything, which is kind of understandable, right? It's this very expensive um, product. By the pandemic, 
the wait lists are epic and mm-hmm. pe- people are talking about Pelotons like this lifeline to in person, to sort of in person community. They're connecting with the instructors. And I think, you know, um, the kind of notion that Peloton was this super, super elite product was always a little bit overwrought. Amanda Mull in the Atlantic wrote a m- phenomenal article about this early on. It's called like, I, I joined a stationary bike gang, which I thought is a great title. And um, <laughs> she points out very early on that if you look at the Peloton user groups online, it is not the image of the kind of person in their Aspen mansion or like their Manhattan townhouse or penthouse. For the most part, it's, you know, people who have really like weird schedules and they're splitting the membership to Peloton and the use of the bike among their whole family um, and they're financing it. And I think that that kind of aspect of the Peloton user group, which is very, very much what came out more in the pandemic was always there. But in some ways, it's an example of what we talked about early on, where like, you know, in my experience teaching some of these Equinox classes, they're like supermodels slapped all over the windows that make you think it's this like really, you know, like (laughs) only the thin and 22 year old models can go here. And they deliberately do that. On the other hand, the actual experience is a little bit more diverse. And I think Peloton, that disconnect is way more extreme because, um, you know, it is, you can finance those bikes, you can split those memberships. And I think in, in its cultural significance over the course of the pandemic, that really changed. Like, I don't see people anymore so much like apologizing for having a Peloton because it's so luxurious and indulgent. It's more, it's, it's less expensive than going to in-person spin. And, and the last thing I'll say about that, sorry, clearly I could talk about Peloton for a long time. The last (laughs) thing I'll say about that is, you know, I talk a lot about in the book about the kind of like moral performance of exercising and the Mm -hmm. virtue signaling. What is so interesting and was such a pandemic experience is that the act of going to the gym in the pandemic switched basically overnight from being like, hey, look at me, I'm working out, I care about health, to someone going and doing in-person exercise. You're so narcissistic and selfish. You should be at (laughs) home. And I was always a little bit skeptical of that because I'm like, I don't think sitting at home making sourdough is like a great health decision, even if you're (laughs) avoiding COVID necessarily. But I think the Peloton being an at-home thing that allowed you not to be with other people that kind of stripped away some of the sense that this was the snobby indulgence and more like, Oh, she's so good. She's on the Peloton. She's not, you know, going out um, in public and, and potentially spreading COVID. So it's super interesting. <laughs> Natalia Melman Petrozella's book is called fit nation, the gains and pains of America's exercise obsession. Good luck with that. Is it a half marathon or a full marathon that you're running? This one's a half. I've done a few falls, but my feet are not up for it. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, good luck with it. And I've loved talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Let's go.